This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we hear from people in the commercial real estate industry about how they're navigating and managing through this crisis. My name's Miriam Hall, I'm BizNow's New York City reporter. Basically everyone, from business leaders to politicians to individuals, is trying to make sense of the scale and the scope of the economic impact of this pandemic. As of this week, jobless claims have hit more than 20 million, and some predictions have unemployment reaching as much as 13% in June as the layoffs continue. There's no real modern context for this, but some say the fallout could be as severe as the Great Depression. On this episode, we're hearing from Sam Chandon. He's an economist, and he's the Dean of the Shack Institute of Real Estate at NYU. He's talking here about how changes in our behaviour might impact real estate and its values, and how real estate professionals should prepare for this rapidly shifting economy and job market. What I think we're watching very carefully now in our assessing, particularly on the behavioral side of this is, you know, once we're in a position where we can see a gradual return to normalcy, um, you know, what do uh, behaviors look like? How comfortable are people going to be you know, going to restaurants, how comfortable are they going to be, you know, going to, you know, a concert with 30,000 other people in the room? Um, and what adjustments are we going to need to see on the supply side, where restaurants, you know, airlines uh, are going to have to, you know, undertake measures, uh, you know, to potentially limit uh, the degree of density and co-location that, that uh, is otherwise a natural part of that experience. So from that, when we look, obviously we can't really predict every day. I think we feel differently. Like every day I wake up and think I will never be able to go to a restaurant until there's a vaccine. And then other days I'm like, I feel okay. So I think a lot, I think a lot of people are like in that state of mind. What do those behavioral changes mean for real estate? Do you think, which in its simplest terms is where we live and where we work. What does it mean for that sort of space? And that's sort of the value of that space, do you think? So there's a couple of ways that we can look at this. There are a lot of really smart people in the market who are thinking about exactly this question. And there's a lot of conjecture and speculation as to how you know, uh, tenants, uh, you know, preferences will change uh, and, and how households, you know, uh, you know, means of or ways of engagement with the economy will change impacting different types of real estate. And an example of this would be that, um, you know, the inertia around online grocery shopping, uh, you know, we are the, the, and the forced adoption of online grocery shopping as sort of a, at a national scale um, is something that will have long lasting implications uh, impacting you know, grocery anchored retail on one side and then sort of industrial warehouse and fulfillment centers on the other. Um, what we can also do is to look at um, is to look at you know, some of the market data to see sort of how does the market you know, equity markets feel about you know, the way in which different types of real estate are going to recover, which ones are most at risk. And we can see very clearly that you know, some of our intuition around where the you know, greatest challenges might be are translating very directly into differences in you know, the stock prices of major publicly traded REITs. And so, um, and, and the way that lenders sort of are underwriting, are provi- you know, augmenting surveillance for you know, their balance sheet portfolios of loans. And so in some cases, what we'll see is that the, you know, the decline in returns on, you know, uh, you know, major regional mall REITs uh, look very, very severe. Um, 
every class of REITs is going to have experienced you know, some downward adjustment, uh, but it's, uh, it's much more reserved uh, when we look at you know, industrial portfolios, when we look at multifamily portfolios, where I think you know, we can bring analysis to bear over and above the intuition that's being reflected in you know, the stock markets and, and in the way that you know, we're engaging in sort of a very public discourse and dialogue around this is to then look at different types of space in a very granular way and say, you know, in particular, if there is a long-term impact on how we think about co-location, one, the desirability of co-location, physical co-location here, I mean, uh, for any of a range of different activities, uh, but also the necessity of co-location. You know, how does that impact different types of space? And I think what we've seen is that on one hand, uh, we've been able to pivot very quickly uh, in many of our professional occupations to remote working. And uh, the idea that many of us would have held in part because of just, you know, our muscle memory around always going to the office around sort of how could we be productive, um, how could we work together effectively, how could we collaborate if we are not physically, you know, in the same space. Uh, You know, our thinking about that, our willingness to, you know, consider that, you know, there are ways in which we can work very effectively together, get deals done in real estate, even if we're not physically co-located for every meeting. We've come a long way in our thinking about that over a very short period of time. We're also seeing new technologies and platforms that are being deployed, some that have been under development for many years, but uh, you know, now have gotten new impetus um, and, and new momentum you know, to facilitate you know, transaction activity and deal-making and engagement. So I think our sense around the necessity of you know, constant co-location if that's changing, we can still be very productive economic agents when we're not co-located all of the time. There's still going to be times where, of course, it makes sense you know, to be in the room together. Um, but uh, we can differentiate uh, those opportunities and those needs from the ones where we can work in more flexible ways. The other piece of it, though, is in the space design itself and the desirability of co-location. I think there is going to be uh, some real questions that we're going to have to answer around you know the role of highly dense spaces you know in uh, you know on the other side of on the other side of the crisis um, and you know the dynamics of this we're talking to a lot of epidemiologists so much of the economic modeling we're doing right now must be informed by people that have a deep uh, set of skills in understanding the trajectory of viruses and how that trajectory might change depending upon different policies that we enact, uh, you know, how some of the assumptions we're making today uh, will have to be uh, you know, revisited if we, in short order, identify sort of a viable vaccine. Um, so all of those are going to be important. Coworking is sort of, I think, an example or a case in point for us because it is highly dense um, and in an environment, even for co-working firms that are able to you know, reallocate space, you know, build, you know, that have flexibility around how they build out their spaces. Um, if it is the case then that they are able to less effectively monetize their space because they have to move to a lower density regime, you know, at least on the margin, that's going to present challenges to profitability and to viability for some of the spaces we see out there. Basically, what's happened is, is that we're thinking, we're rethinking about how we live and how we work. Right. So from yeah. that, is there anything that you can, in a way that I don't think any anyone ever has before? You will have 
folks point to you know uh, pandemics uh, you know in history, uh, and certainly if we go very far back, we'll find examples of you know pandemics in Europe that were much much larger in scale uh, than what we're experiencing now, and took a much more painful toll on the progress of civilization. Um, but even as compared to uh, you know outbreaks uh, that have occurred you know in the post World War II era. Um, you know, in you know, the Spanish flu, if we were to look back 100 years, one of the key differences now is that we have access to a broader and richer and more mature set of tools to facilitate de-densification than we've ever had before. Even as compared to 10 years ago, um, you know, the, tech, the sophistication of the technologies, the maturity of the technologies that are in, allowing us to engage, to transfer information, to, you know, close transactions... You know, we're in a much different place than we have been historically. And so while there may be uh, a sense that there is a new balance in terms of how we assign importance to density and co-location, what's critical here is that now we also have a set of tools that can allow us to de-densify while also being very active and engaged in creating value in the economy. Now, that's not going to be the case for every aspect of the economy. I think what we're seeing, the labor market numbers that you cited, is that there are very clearly segments of the economy that do require co-location and that are experiencing a great deal of stress today. Um, but I think in many of the professional occupations, what we see is that there are opportunities and tools that will allow us to be productive and to engage. It does raise another point that I want to make sure that you know I bring to the table, which is that we are seeing in the data, as well as in the anecdotal evidence, very, very real differences in outcomes and implications from everything that's happening in the world today uh, for folks that uh, are of different skill levels, uh, that belong to different demographic groups, um, at different uh, you know, income levels, um, and in different types of occupations and professions. Um, and it is not only in terms of you know, the health outcomes and the mortality rates, but in terms of who is feeling uh, the most significant and immediate pain you know, from job losses. Uh, you know, we've got folks that you know are you know not necessarily you know uh, struggling first and foremost with you know the challenges of working from home. We've got people that are struggling with issues around food security, um, and you know those differences that we see emerging. The the digital divide: who has access to the technology that allows them to be productive in their particular occupation, and who does not? You know, are very very real you know policy and uh, challenges and social challenges for all of us. Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary kind of glaring light on the level of inequality throughout society as who, on so many levels, who's out of a job and who's not, who's comfortable, who's not, who's able to do their job and who's not, who's safe and who's not, basically. Yeah. So tell me a little bit, I mean, you obviously are working closely with, with students. Yes. This is kind of, this is reshaping everything, but what kind of job market is it now for these for these people who are obviously very passionate about commercial real estate or real estate and, and want to put their life into it? I mean, is it secure? Is it insecure? I mean, I don't know. What do you think? So I think you know, there are uh, we, we've seen a real sea change in terms of you know the opportunity, the immediate opportunity set in the real estate market. You know, just two months, three months ago, we were in the tightest labor market that we would have experienced in a generation for, you know, highly skilled labor. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, real estate for all of our concerns around, you know, how much longer can the expansion go, uh, had you know, remained, you know, very healthy and very active as an industry. 
And we've been asking that question now for several years. You know, the, the fact that, you know, up until a month ago, you know, that this was, uh, had set, you know, was setting new records every month for the longest expansion in U.S. history naturally raised that question of, you know, what is the longevity of the cycle? What will be that proximate cause, uh, you know, for uh, an inflection in the economy? You know, I think, uh, you know, well-prepared students and programs around the country are finding that the immediate opportunity set has certainly shifted. You know, we're seeing that, you know, there are not necessarily, you know, new discretionary construction projects that are going to kick off in April and May. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done in uh, surveilling, um, you know, uh, lending portfolios um, in, uh, you know, uh, with great regret, you know, the, the distressed asset, distressed lending space is one where we're experiencing growth. Um, uh, you know, the in the industrial space, given sort of you know the changes in you know human behaviors that are acting in support of logistics, warehouse distribution, fulfillment, um, you know the the opportunity set again has shifted, um, and it will rebalance again um, as we begin to make that gradual move towards normalcy in the economy. Uh, but I think you know what uh, we see students again in our program and in others doing. You know, the students are trained and exposed to you know the, the full range of uh, skill sets uh, in real estate. Um, they are incredibly adaptable, extraordinarily entrepreneurial, very well skilled. Uh, you know, they have exposure to construction, to cost estimation, to data analytics, uh, you know, to prop tech, entrepreneurship, as well as sort of you know, that core commercial real estate finance and financial modeling work, um, as well as management and leadership. So you know, as the opportunities pivot. I think what we see is that you know students are paying very very close attention to the market. You know, we're bringing to bear as our other real estate programs the full set of strengths uh, and uh, and connections that we have with industry to make sure that you know students are learning about how the opportunity set is pivoting. Um, there are some clearly some specific policy interventions that uh, are going to create opportunities in some segments of the market um, and, and you know uh, where we haven't seen them before. Investments in in potential info investments in infrastructure, the potential for, you know, a large, you know, federal push uh, for infrastructure. Uh, we're fairly reserved on, you know, the likelihood of, of that happening only because, you know, we've seen, you know, a push for infrastructure in, you know, 2017. It's not necessarily the case that um, once we, again, begin to move towards normalcy or once we're sort of in that period of normalization that, you know, some of the very grand you know, uh, you know, uh, interventions will actually materialize. I mean, it must feel on some level like, wow, this is a disaster. Like everything's on pause. <laughs> Am I ever going to get a job? Are you hearing any of that from from them? I think all of us are are naturally concerned, not just students. We have, you know, alumni, we have uh, folks that are, you know, uh, mid and late career, um, you know, very senior in the profession that realize that, uh, you know, this is a period of significant disruption and dislocation. In the initial phases uh, of this disruption, you know, the jobs that we've lost in the economy, when we look at, you know, the numbers from the various reports, the public reports, the private data sets, um, you know, it's very clear that the immediate job losses were in areas like retail, leisure and hospitality, uh, you know, that depend upon and where there simply is no alternative to physical co-location. Um, I think that uh, what we will see now in this next stage um, is that while many of us in the professional space are able to work remotely, 
there is a key distinction that we need to make. And when we're doing our economic and econometric modeling, it's driving very clear differences in terms of the outcomes uh, that we see in the projections that we're making. There is a difference between being able to work remotely and being able to create economic value remotely. And not everyone who can work remotely is going to be able to create economic value remotely. So as we move further along in this process, initially, you know, all of these jobs moved remote. Once we have an opportunity to say, okay, where's the value being created? And, you know, as we deploy some of these platforms, are there certain roles or positions that we need to rethink? I think that becomes a big part of this. But, um, and I think that uh, the, the weight of that will fall most heavily upon intermediaries in the market. And so, uh, you know, as new opportunities open up uh, that, you know, leverage digital platforms, I think, you know, the uh, you know, the, the, the recent graduate, the young person in our undergraduate or graduate program who not only knows, um, you know, and has the technical skills in, you know, the, the financial modeling and the cost estimation, but who also has, you know, the skills and the know-how in working with data sets, in uh, working, in, and not, not sort of in Excel, but very large data sets, how to really mine data. Um, you know, how to think about prop tech, entrepreneurship, the impact of dislocation on legacy businesses. You know, uh, I think what we're finding is that, you know, these are skills um, in the market that are in tremendous demand. Um, someone who knows how to work with data to anticipate where uh, there will, where risks will emerge, that is able to triage a lending portfolio, uh, that is able to do, you know, proprietary analysis for their employer on, you know, differences that will emerge in the health of different metropolitan areas around the country. Uh, you know, there's, uh, I think what we're seeing is that there's a tremendous demand for folks with these skills. So I know that you can't go black and white and you can't, you can't obviously predict the future, but is there, if you could break it down, is there someone that's, someone that's safe right now and someone that's not safe like if you were a retail leasing broker are you safe right now not really versus someone who as you say knows how to triage a lending portfolio i mean can you can you break that down into kind of a, a, ba a basic job level i'll preface it by saying that uh, i'm uh, always uh surprised and astonished and in a very positive way at our capacity for reinvention, repositioning as participants, you know, sort of as individuals in the real estate market. And so, you know, when I talk to colleagues and friends that are in the retail world, uh, you know, are, are they, uh, you know, uh, are they unaware of the need to be thinking creatively? Absolutely not. I think what we see is that people are very, very aware of the importance of repositioning assets, identifying highest and best uses, you know, working creatively with tenants, uh, and in some cases on a very personal and individual level, you know, uh, finding ways to diversify your skill set or your value proposition in the market. Um, you know, are there segments of the market, you know, some parts of the industry that go away entirely? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think what we do see is that there are going to be segments of the market where the operational intensity uh, becomes higher. And so when we think about something like, uh, you know, uh, seniors housing, um, and, you know, whether it's independent living, assisted living, memory care, you know, the operational intensity, the value of bringing a strong skill set to bear, you know, as a participant in the seniors housing space has never been greater. Um, you know, are there, uh, you know, are, are there going to be uh, uh, issues that are uh, much more blunt where, you know, we have stranded assets? I think we will see a scenario and we will be in a position where uh, we are going to have to rationalize the amount of retail space in the United States. Um, and some retail space will find that its newest or its next highest and best use 
you know, is not as retail. What I'd suggest here, though, is that what we've seen is, and other people have used this phrase, I've thrown it out there a couple of times as well, the future has arrived early. Many of the trends that we've seen in the market over the course of this cycle that have presented challenges and required reinvention in retail, that have favored industrial, that have meant changes in the way uh, that we design common spaces in multifamily assets, the rethinking around you know, office space and co-location um, in the office sector, um, all of these trends have been at play. Some of them have proceeded quickly, some slowly. There's a, been a very abrupt acceleration uh, for all of us in needing to adopt digital technologies and platforms um, in ways that have allowed us to cope with and manage around everything that's happening. Um, and so I think, you know, some of these trends that have been moving, you know, slowly uh, or at, at a moderate and manageable pace, uh, we've seen a very abrupt acceleration. And there, there will be, of course, a shakeout from that. From that, from the fact that th this has kind of reshaped how we think about everything it's shown an enormous amount of inequality it's shown a lot of um you know shown a lot where a lot of pain points are if you're a real estate professional listening to this i mean what would your advice be to kind of prepare i know it's really hard because it's all it's changing every day but what, what would you say you should be doing to kind of secure yourself as a professional as a as a working person now to kind of both look after your career and look after your job, but also, I guess, make a contribution to the economy and 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 add into preparing for what the future is going to be like. Sure. Well, there's, you know, I think you know, the, the, the first thing that everyone is having to do is sort of to look very closely at their portfolio of assets, whether, whether they're a broker or a lender or an investor in the market. You know, what are the assets that uh, you know, require your immediate attention? So that triage process of saying which relationships which properties uh, do I need to be investing in right now? That that's key. Uh, I think there's uh, you know as an educator, I have a bias here. We should always be investing in ourselves, and you know, we offer you know hundreds of courses that folks can take online, and everything from data analytics to prop tech to you know advanced financial modeling. And whether it's at Shack or, or anywhere else, I would sort of always be encouraging people to you know be investing in their in their formal and technical skill sets. Uh, Go back to school. Uh, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Everyone should be getting a master's and, you know, now. Many of our programs certainly uh, you know, offer the flexibility. You know, when Larry Silverstein founded Shack in 1967, you know, one of the key mandates he gave us is that you know, we serve not only you know, a full-time degree-seeking population, but we serve the working real estate community. Uh, and so many of our programs, and this is certainly the case at other institutions as well, uh, but many of our programs are designed to support working professionals who want to be augmenting and building their skill set you know, while they're you know, very active in the market. What I'd suggest overall, um, whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's an asset, uh, whether it's a tenant role, uh, certainly be gathering information, be thinking about you know, what sort of, you know, the world might look like in six months or 12 months. Keep an open mind uh, because there is tremendous uncertainty, as you've pointed out. Um, but investing in relationships, I think, is you know, ultimately then the key thing here. You know, while you're building skill sets, while you're you know, managing your day-to-day -day business and securing and stabilizing that business, you know, reach out to colleagues. This is you know, a perfect opportunity. If there's someone that you haven't spoken to or in five or six years, um, it's not going to be awkward or odd in the least. If you were to reach out to someone and reconnect with someone that you haven't spoken to in many years, just to check in and say, 
how are you doing? I hope you're doing all right and that everything is well with you. Um, I think this is an extraordinary opportunity and it's one that we can pursue you know, right from home uh, to reestablish, rebuild, reinforce you know, all of those connections. Um, we can call it uh, something like you know, building your network, but I think what it's ultimately driven by right now is that apart from you know, all uh, uh, sheltering in place uh, and working from home, uh, we have one very, very important thing in common, which is uh, our capacity for empathy. I want to ask you a few quick hit type of questions. I know that you can't predict the future and I know that there's not a straight answer, but one, uh, Q2, how's that going to look? Pretty brutal? Uh, yes. So I think that both in terms of the labor market and in terms of uh, your GDP numbers, uh, based on the higher frequency data that we've got, uh, we do expect that uh, it will be, um, in our baseline scenario, uh, the most significant deterioration in the job market and in broader economic performance that we have on record. Um, and again, the abruptness of that decline um, is a function of you know, the causal driver and this being sort of an exogenous health crisis. Um, the, um, uh, a couple of important things to keep in mind are that you know, we're not going to experience you know, quarter over quarter you know, declines in activity on the order of 20 or 30%. And we're not going to see you know, initial claims numbers, you know, on the order of 7 million a week, you know, week after week after week. Um, so, you know, these numbers do begin to level off in our baseline scenario, but the second quarter will be uh, especially challenging. We do currently expect that the third quarter uh, uh, will also be challenging. While we will get a, a sort of an official uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, official guidance from the National Bureau of Economic Research and you know the Business Cycle Dating Committee with regard to you know the beginning and end of a recession. Uh, I think uh, you know looking at the data, reading yesterday's beige book, the the beige book from Wednesday, um, April fifteenth. Um, you know, I, I think uh, you know it's it's clear that we are in recession now. Uh, we do not need to wait for a formal pronouncement. I find people are kind of falling into two categories. One is the economy was in a good shape before. This is a sudden, sudden shock, but it will have a sudden, sudden recovery. And other people say it's going to take a really long time. In our baseline scenario, uh, you know, we see the recovery taking certainly significantly longer than, uh, than the deterioration. Um, and it would be extraordinary, um, you know, when we're looking at historical business cycles, it would be extraordinary in this particular cycle if we were to see 20 million new hires, you know, in three weeks. Uh, that would be truly unprecedented. Um, there are dislocations that are and disruptions occurring in the economy from which we'll not recover. So, you know, where we've lost a lot of people in terms of, I shouldn't say we've lost a lot of people, let me be more careful, where we've lost a lot of jobs um, in, um, in areas like hospitality and leisure, we're going to have to watch very, very carefully for things like, uh, you know, the continued importance of social distancing in restaurants. If we have to de-densify our restaurants, given the margins on which many restaurants operate at a lower level of density without some significant rent relief, um, many restaurants are simply no longer viable businesses. Um, when we look at the airline industry, you know, in a very, uh, I think, supportive package for the, uh, you know, from the federal government, you know, protecting airline workers um, and limiting, um, you know, the number uh, of layoffs at the major airlines and to smaller airlines, again, sort of, you know, significant forgiveness of, of debt. The, I think what we also see is that in an effort to de-densify in the absence of a vaccine, if it's the case that, you know, every middle seat needs to remain empty 
And even then, we're talking about one and a half, two feet of social distancing at most. Uh, you know, that changes the profit dynamics of the airlines in a very dramatic way. Um, are people going to go to a concert with 30,000 other people in the room? Um, we're going to have, you know, in the absence of a vaccine, we're going to have to look very, very closely at how quickly uh, people's behaviors uh, adjust. We've only got a couple of case examples that we can look at where, you know, economies, countries have, have are further along in terms of uh, the life cycle of the crisis. And so when we look at China, um, what we see is that while the vast majority of uh, folks that are surveyed have returned to work and are you know commuting to work, uh, only a very very small number are leaving home for, uh, dis- uh, for on a discretionary basis. So they're still going out to buy groceries. They're not going out otherwise. Um, and you could say on one hand that in the immediate aftermath of the worst stages of the crisis, people are naturally hesitant. You know, we're extremely risk averse right now. There's a, you know, there's a degree of um, agoraphobia that uh, you know, we're going to experience at a national level, uh, sort of even as thing, conditions begin to normalize. Um, and so I think when we look at the example of China, what we see is at least in the immediate aftermath of, of the worst of the crisis, once social distancing measures and restrictions are relaxed, people are still hesitant to go back out. Um, how long that will persist uh, you know, the, is, is, I think, what we have to assess. What will the world look like in six or 12 months? Um, on the margins, are there going to be some folks that are less inclined to travel, uh, that are less inclined to go out, that think about different ways in which they can um, you know, sort of, you know, spend their leisure time, that limit uh, you know, uh, their exposure to high-density environments? All of those things are going to be really material. Overall, again, in that baseline scenario, and we're, we're really analyzing a very wide range given the degree of uncertainty in the, in the underlying drivers, but when we do look at that baseline scenario, you know, we're seeing a recovery of the jobs that we've lost so far that uh, we will have, at least in terms of the count of jobs, you know, maybe come full circle in late 2022. So that's two, that's two years. So, so It so- is. The... Uh, I think when, when we look at you know, the degree of job losses, where the job losses are occurring, the extent to which over the next several months, we believe that we'll experience a larger number of losses in some professional occupations. So the immediate job losses were in areas that depend immediately on co-location. Uh, but uh, we believe that that next set of losses uh, are, are, thing, are losses that we'll experience in areas that involve intermediaries that are being disrupted by the adoption of technologies and are discovering efficient ways to work remotely. Um, and some of these will be professional occupations. In, notwithstanding the abruptness of the job losses, and given, again, the qualifier that given the degree of uncertainty in the market, we're modeling a very wide range of scenarios. We're looking very carefully at you know, the medical data, you know, talking to epidemiologists, uh, looking at sort of the policy responses at local, state, federal level. There's a, a large number of inputs here um, that r- sort of really stretch the capacity of economists to effectively model um, in real time. Uh, that being said, in our baseline scenario, we see a recovery, at least in terms of the count of jobs uh, you know, that, uh, that, that we've lost uh, occurring in the third and fourth quarters of 2022. Okay, so anyone who thinks it's going to be a spike back is wishful thinking, is that? Well, I think we have to differentiate between the labor market um, and uh, economic output. Um, and you know, given our capacity to uh, increase the economic output, uh, 
without necessarily bringing in more labor inputs. Uh, I think that balance is different than what it was, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. We're likely to see a resumption and increase in economic activity and labor markets will catch up with a lag. And certainly that was the case, you know, with the recovery from the great financial crisis. It took us a very long time to recover jobs and it was lagging on the recovery in uh, the aggregate economic output of the United States. So we'll see something similar, uh, I think, I'll be under different circumstances with the performance of the labor market this time around. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you talking and I really appreciate your insight into this. This is, you know, obviously a time of great reflection. <laughs> yes, it is. And so thank you so much for taking time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it very much.